Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 13. We're continuing forward in the series in Genesis, uh, and we're all the way up to chapter 13 already. Um, There is this growing sentiment, this growing idea, um, one that many of us have experienced firsthand, the reality that it seems to many of us that the world is as divided as we can ever remember it being. There are any number of issues that can divide us in the world today. Now, I I have mentioned to you many times, and I want to continue to to go back to this particular idea that no matter how divided the world is, the church can be unified because it's God who unifies His church. But let me say to you, and this is our, our thesis for today before we read Genesis 13. As the church, we must be careful to strive for peace and unity as we worship our Savior so that we're not distracted by the things of the world. As we were reminded in the passage that we read uh, before uh, the sermon today, our citizenship, our final resting place, our land in which we belong is not this world, but it is another world. It is heaven. It is the place that that God has guaranteed for us. Let me invite you this time to stand one more time as we read from the Scripture. Genesis chapter 13. I'm going to read all 18 verses for us. Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between me and you and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, and I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also could be counted. Arise, walk through the land and the breadth of the land, for I give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. What we're uh, about to see in this particular passage is actually the first in a trilogy of Abram and Lot stories. The first one's here in Genesis 13. The second one is in Genesis 14, 1 through 24. And then the next one is a little bit later. It's in Genesis 18, 16 through 19, 38. What we're going to find here in this particular passage is that Abram and Lot continue the tension between family members that started with Cain and Abel and goes on to Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. But there's something that that I want you to see right away in this particular passage that is very important for us to understand about what God is like. This first point in the first four verses I've entitled, Return to the Open Arms of the Lord. What we see right away here in Genesis chapter 1 is that Abram returns to the place where his tent had been in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 through 8, he returns back to the place that he originally went to in the promised land. And even though this story in some sense is about the physical moving of Abram from Egypt back to the land that God had promised, there's a larger spiritual truth that's being taught here. Here's the truth. When we choose to live sinfully, there is a spiritual distance that happens between us and God. Because God is perfectly holy, He cannot and will not tolerate sin. Now, this does not mean that God's love for us is diminished, but our sin creates a distance between us and Him. And to be clear, God didn't move away from Abram, but Abram moved away from God. God doesn't move away from us, but our sin, in some sense, moves us away from him. But this passage reminds us of a glorious truth about God and our sins. Sometimes when we sin, and maybe you can sympathize this, I don't think this is just me, but sometimes when I sin, I feel the distance between me and God. Can you sympathize with that? That that when you've lived sinfully, you can feel a distance between you and God. We have a hard time, I have a hard time, turning away from my sin and turning back to God because of my sin. Or in other words, I have a hard time returning back to the place or state where I first worshipped God. But this passage reminds us that we must inform our feelings with biblical truth. And the truth is God wants us to turn from our sin and return to worshipping Him. 
When we turn away from our sin, this holy God welcomes us into his loving arms and receives us again. If you notice in the text in the first four verses, when, God, or when Abram turns back to God, when he returns from Egypt back to the place where he had made the altar, there appears to be no hesitation on God's part to receive Abram back and confirm the promises that he had given to him. When we turn from our sin, this holy God welcomes us into his loving arms and receives us again. Now, how do we know that this is happening in this particular passage? Look with me at verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 13. As soon as Abram returns back to the land in which he had been promised, as soon as he returns back to God in a sense, we find almost right away God reconfirming or affirming the promises that he had just given to him a chapter ago. In verses 14 and 15, you see that he is reconfirming the promises that potentially could have been broken by Abram's sin. But what we find in this particular passage is that when God says that he is going to do something, it is not contingent upon your or I's behavior, but it's contingent upon his power and his promises to do that thing. Now, already in this particular passage, there is a sense of relief and a sense of wonderfulness about God that you should be getting already, that God loves you so much that even after you've become a Christian, if you sin, he will receive you back again into his loving arms. But the truth here in this particular passage is that oftentimes the only thing that stands between the Christian and their worship of God is often our own pride to repent and to return to God. But one of the things that we're going to see right away in this section of or this next section of verses, is this call to strive for peace. In verses 5 through 9, there's a call to strive for peace. As the story continues in verse 5, we find that, that Lot has amassed wealth as well as Abram did from their time in Egypt. In fact, Abram and Lot have become so wealthy that the land that they're currently dwelling in doesn't have the resources to support the vast amount of livestock that they both have. As a result, a dispute breaks out between the men who tend Abram and Lot's livestock. And at, this, at first, it, it seems like just a simple dispute in a family until we get to verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 says, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, there's something happening here in verse 7 that, that um, is referred to as a parenthetical statement. We, we have another one in verse 10. But what is intended to happen here is it's intended to point out to us some significant details in the text that we might have not been to privy to otherwise. And here's what it says. Here's the parenthetical statement in verse 7. At that time, the Canaanites and the Pezzarites were dwelling, or the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, let's remember, at this time, there are no police officers or sheriff to protect them. 
the main protection that they have are each other. So we have a family with large resources that are somewhat dependent on each other for protection from the enemies that are around them. And now there's strife in the family that could open them up to danger. And this danger will actually be realized in the next chapter. But the point that is being built here is that conflict can often open us up to danger that we may have not even considered. Let me say that to you again. Conflict can open us up to danger that we may have not even considered. Now, church, we must take note of this. We have to recognize that that we've been brought together in some sense for mutual care and protection of each other from a world that seeks to divide us. And when we allow disputes to go unresolved, the church can be in greater danger as a result of the division that is happening amongst its members. Are, Are you catching this, church family? We cannot allow disputes in the family of God to go unresolved without recognizing that we have now opened the church up for potential danger because of disputes and conflict. But look at the example of Abram here in the text. For all of his faults in the previous chapter, Abram seems to seek to do the right thing by his family member. In verse 8, he he calls for a peace treaty between himself and Lot, and his workers and Lot's workers. Abram does something here that we'll see repeated in the New Testament. I want you to turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I, I want you to see something. First Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, let, let me read it to you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the, saint, the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trial trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brothers go to law against brothers and that before unbelievers? Listen, Listen to this. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let verse 7 ring in your ears, brothers and sisters. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be 
Why not rather be defrauded? Abram here appears to be ready to suffer wrong to prefer his nephew above himself. And remember, the promise of this land was given to Abram and not Lot. The land is Abram's to have, not Lot's. But Abram is prepared to yield part of what is rightfully his to the benefit of his family member. And let's just acknowledge right away, this is hard to do, isn't it? I have a hard time not getting upset when I think that someone else is trying to take what I deserve. Anyone else? Is this just me? You guys just willfully give away all you have to anyone that wants it? If I think I deserve something, I am the only one who has the right to it because it belongs to me. But Abram is willing to give up what is rightfully his to his family member. Let's, let's consider this even deeper for a moment. It's important for us to remember that, that if we're going to have the unity that we were talking about earlier, we have to remember that peacemaking and reconciliation are central to the message and ministry of Jesus. Peacemaking and reconciliation are central to the message and ministry of Jesus. So serious. I, this is one of those, those things that, that I love in the text, because there, there's oftentimes um, this accusation that the church is so concerned about your money, that, that the church just wants your money. But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 26, there's a drastically different uh, opinion that, that Jesus gives about the church and money versus sin and the worship of God. If you're familiar with this passage, there's a, a condemnation in this particular passage that there is a particular act of worship, meaning giving to the church, that Jesus forbids them from doing until they reconcile with their brother to have unity amongst Christian brothers and sisters. <clears throat> it is so serious <clears throat> in the economy of God that there is an act of worship that he would have you not do before you reconcile your relationship with your brothers and sisters. But, but here's, the, here's the pinnacle of this. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1 really quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verses 14 through 17. When it comes to unity in the church and when it comes to striving for peace, this is the passage that has to resonate in our hearts and minds. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It says this, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. We must recognize that, that in this particular passage, 
he starts with the fact that Jesus Christ himself is our peace, and that in his death, burial, and resurrection in the church, he has made us one new man in place of two. The separation between Jew and Gentile has been made now into one. What are the implications of this? Christ died so that he himself is our peace. And in becoming our peace, he died so that you and I can live at peace with each other. When you think about unity and peace in the church, this, this has to resonate in your mind. You have to think about it this way. To minimize peace in the church is to minimize the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Let me say that to you again. To minimize peace and unity in the church is to minimize the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There are so many other passages that we could spend so much time talking about in terms of peace in the body of Christ, peace amongst believers, unity amongst believers, passages like Matthew 5, 9, where it says, blessed are the peacemakers, or Psalm 133, where it's a call for brothers to dwell in unity, or Hebrews 12, chapter 4, where we're to strive for peace. But let me just say to you that we have to recognize that the world and the devil wants nothing more than to cause disunity in the church, disunity in your home, and disunity so as to disrupt the mission of Christ's church. But because of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we can respond to disunity with peace. We can respond in such a way that strives for unity amongst Christians because of the peace that Jesus Christ has already given us. There's something else very important that I want you to see in this text. It's a phrase that you're probably familiar with. It's a saying that you're probably familiar with. But I want you to see it here clearly in the text. If you'll turn back over to Genesis chapter 13, I want you to see it in verses 10 through 13. Here's the saying. All that glitters isn't gold. All that glitters isn't gold. Now, I, I want to be clear in this text for you, because we see a parting of ways between Abram and Lot. And, and there are times in which we need to part ways with others. But as we part ways with others, we must be careful to make sure that we're not opening ourselves up to more danger or just plain foolish decisions. And in this text, Lot does both. Look at, with me at verse 10. Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley and was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zohar. Verse 10 tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes and he evaluates the land. And the text uses the phrase, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And right away, our minds should be drawn to another time when someone looked upon something, evaluated it, and denied the promises of God. Let me tell you what that is. Eve looked upon the fruit, saw that it was good for food, and took and ate it. 
And just in case you might think I'm stretching what the text is saying here, look at the end of verse 10. The land that Lot is looking at and choosing is a land that the Lord will soon destroy. Lot is moving away from the promised land to a land of sin and destruction. It's not that parting is wrong, but what is wrong is the foolish choices of Lot after they part. He's going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the text reminds us that at one point, this particular land that is now desolate and desert was once lush and green before the Lord destroyed it. But let's not forget what this land actually is. If you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah is linked with one of Noah's grandsons, Canaan, who was cursed in Genesis chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. But you have to understand that the language, again, that's being used here when it says this was before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. This, again, is flood-type destruction language from Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. It's a major catastrophe where only one family survives, and, and we'll see that again soon in Genesis 19. But there's a stark contrast that's being tainted, painted here between the beauty that Lot thinks he sees and the desperate spiritual nature of this land. This continues this idea of looking and evaluating things differently than God. Remember, Eve looks upon the fruit. Lot looks upon the land. His wife looks back on Sodom and is turned to a pillar of salt. Israel, once freed from slavery, will look back and desire to go back into slavery in Egypt. On and on they look and make wrong evaluations. And when we see this pattern in the scriptures, immediately we should start to ask ourselves this question. Am I making wrong evaluations of the things in my life? And how would I even know? You see, one of the reasons that God has given us each other is to help us make right evaluations of the world around us. We were talking about this today uh, in our study. There is this idea in the world today that something that's old has lost its usefulness. The older something is, the less useful it, can act it actually is. And let me suggest to you that the teaching of the Scriptures is actually completely contrary to that. That in the church, those who are older Christians, parents, mature Christian friends, we need you in the church. We need the wisdom that, that you bring. And the church has been given to us by God to help us evaluate the world around us. But the key to making right evaluation of the world around us is to ask this question. And this is the question that Lot did not ask. What does God say about this? When we're faced with different situations in life and we have to make an evaluation of what's happening around us, our first question should always be, what does God say about this? And then go to the Word of God to find out. In this particular text, God has said that the land that they are currently in is the promised land and that to bless Abram means blessing from God. 
But Lot instead separates himself from Abram and the blessing of the Lord. While at the same time, Abram waits for the Lord's blessing. Lot joins himself to what verse 13 uh, calls the men of Sodom who were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They have highly offended the Lord by their sin. And yet, Lot thinks he is heading for what is the good life. Let me just reiterate to you, not all that glitters is gold. And in fact, sometimes the things that shine the brightest are in fact the most dangerous. But where should we go with all of this? How should we think about what's happening here in the text? Let me encourage you to see the end of this particular chapter through this lens. Count your blessings as you joyfully obey in worship. Count your blessings as you joyfully obey in worship. You see, one of the things that I want to stress to you out of these particular verses is that one of the greatest issues that can often plague us in this instant gratification social media world that we live in is the tendency to be so focused on what we don't have while at the same time forgetting all the blessings that we do have. And we need to take the lesson from God here to heart. In verses 14 through 15, God instructs Abram to stop to take a look at all that he has given him. And let me challenge you that this should be a regular daily practice for us to stop and consider the blessings of God. Most find the greatest benefit from doing this, from actually writing down the, rest, the blessings of God. Most of us have a notes app on our phone. Some of us still use pen and paper. That's me. But however you do it, the challenge is to write down. Here's the challenge. Write down five things a day for the next week that are blessings from God. And just stop and pray and thank God for those five things throughout the day. Little by little, each day, you'll find five more things added to your list. Five more things to be thankful for God about. Five more things to consider how great God is in his blessing to you. But what you might find is that you're returning to what God is pointing out in verses 15 through 17. Let me encourage you to see this. We've talked about this before previously. I don't want to go into the great details of, of how it actually works. But in verses 15 through 17, there's a linguistic structure that's called a chiasm. A chiasm is an inverted outline. In most outlines, point number one, point number two, those are the main points of the outline. But in a chiastic structure, the main point is the center of the outline. All of the points build to the main structure. So here, I'll give you the, the chiasm, just if you want to write it down and be a, a Bible nerd like, uh, like me and John, you're welcome to join us in nerddom. We have good cookies, all right? Um, but here's the outline. The A is, I will give the land to you. That's in verse 15. The B is your offspring in verse 15. The C is dust of the earth, which is then repeated in verse 16. That's C prime. The B prime, again, is your offspring in verse 16. 
And the A prime is I am giving to you in verse 17. That means the center, the thing of what's being pointed to, and in, in fact is not the land at all. What is being pointed to in verses 15 through 17 is the fact that in Abram, God will develop for himself a people that will be greater to number than the dust of the earth. You have to understand here in this particular text, God is foreshadowing a day in when not the nation of Israel, but those, all of those who follow God will be greater than the dust of the earth. In fact, they will be his offspring forever, which is reiterated in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. But what he's pointing to, what he's getting after, is all the way in Revelation chapter 7. Let's take a look at this. Revelation chapter 7. In 5 through 8, there, there's a list of numbers. In verse 9... Listen to these words. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And look at what they cry in verse 10 crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, you should be encouraged that in this passage already there is an anticipation of the day in which you and I would receive the salvation of God. But it's also pointing forward to this moment when the children of Abraham are numbered in the millions and the future for when they will be so many that they can't be counted. That all the way back here in Genesis chapter 13, the love of God is already starting to be explained for you today. And when Abram hears these words, when Abram recognizes what God is saying, how does he respond in verse 18? Abram moved his tent, and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And what does he do, brothers and sisters? He built an altar to the Lord. Upon hearing what God is going to do in and through the nation of Israel, through Abram, to make a number of people that is greater than the dust of the earth, Abram responds in worship. This is how, too, we should respond to the great things that the Lord has done for us. We should see all that God has done and respond in such a way that recognizes the worship that we have for a God who is continually blessing us and will bless us into eternity in the future. But let me, again, in application, encourage you to think through a few questions from this text. Question number one. Have you returned to the loving arms of the Lord, or are you still pursuing the world's goods? Are you still pursuing the world's ways? Are you pursuing what the world values? If not, 
if you are still pursuing what the world values, and you're afraid to turn back to God. You, you feel like you have to clean yourself up first before you can return to God. Let me remind you that all of the cleaning that's needed to be done was already done by Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. You come to God, and He cleans you up by the blood of Jesus. Do not fear the loving God of the universe. He has already declared His love for us on the cross. But the second question is not just only an individual question, but it is a corporate question. And it's a question that we must continually ask ourselves as Christ's church here at Crossbridge. The question is, are you actively striving for peace by preferring others? It's not just enough to say, well, I'm at peace with this person that I don't ever speak to. I'm at peace with this person that stays over there away from me. That's not peace, brothers and sisters. Peace and unity inside of the body of Christ is actively choosing by the power of God to prefer and defer to others so as to serve them with gospel intentions. And this is an active decision that we'll have to make regularly as a church. Because the world is not going to just magically start to get along. You understand that? They're not going to just magically have some sort of peace. They're going to continue to be divided over all kinds of issues that are going to mean nothing at the end of time, which provides for us the opportunity to show them what true unity and peace can be like through the blood of Jesus Christ in the church. And although we come from a varied background of, of uh, personal experiences and ways of seeing the world, the thing that unites us together, the thing that brings us peace is not the commonality of thought, of worldly thoughts, but the commonality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's something we're going to have to fight for. It's not something that would just happen on its own. And if we're going to fight for it, we have to see that that peace is only possible through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can bring us the unity that we so desperately need. But here's the final challenge. I've already given you one way, and sometimes I hesitate giving you things to do, um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of guidance. It doesn't mean that it's the only way to go about doing this, but I, I just want to press into you how will you count your blessings this week? How will you go about recounting what God has already done for you and what He promises He will do for you? If you would just simply take some time each day to recall what God has done for you. We often ask each other this question. How are you doing? How are you feeling? And I, I hate that question because most people are not ready to hear that answer. If I answered it honestly, they're not. But, but here's, here's the deal with that. There might be struggles that I'm currently ha have in my life, and, and I might be completely focused on those struggles because they, they might be large, but they're not larger than the blessings of God. 
Whatever struggle you're happening, having right now, I don't want to minimize it. But at the same time, you've never experienced a struggle that is greater than the blessing of salvation. And you're not going to. And so if I'm focused on the blessings of God, I might be able to answer that question, how are you doing, with more than my back hurts again. I might still say my back hurts, but... I have salvation in Jesus Christ. I might say, I don't know, it's, what is today? Today is the 18th of February. I might say, I have $7 in my checking account, but I have salvation in Jesus Christ. We have to train our minds to focus on the blessings of God versus the difficulties of what we're facing. We must take simple steps to do that. But I, I want to say to you, friend, if, if you're here today or, or you're watching online and you don't know the salvation that's available to you, Jesus Christ, through, to you through Jesus Christ, the, the peace that you can have with God and with others through Jesus Christ, God is not just waiting with open arms to receive back to him those who have already repented of their sins but have sinned again. He's waiting at this moment to receive to himself those who are repenting of their sins for the first time. The offer of salvation is extended to you at this point so that even though you might face difficulty, you can still have peace that comes from God alone. The Scriptures tell us that that anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That anyone who confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today can be the day that, that you call out to God in repentance and receive the forgiveness that only he can give through Jesus Christ. But church, we must double down in our commitment to show unity to a world that cannot be unified. We must be a beacon of peace and unity to any world that would see us in the sense that we are a beacon of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me and ask the Lord to help us to be unified in peace by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful text that reminds us that you truly are a God of peace. You're a God who forgives, but you also are a God who keeps his word. We're reminded again, as we were even last week, that, that our sin can't thwart your plan. But you, God, will bring to pass whatever you have willed. But Lord, we're, we're asking now that you would help us as a church to not be distracted by the shiny things of this world, but instead we would see the power and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And as a result of the peace that's been brought to us by that sacrifice, we would strive for peace with each other. Lord, help us to never take for granted the many the multitude of blessings that you have given us. 
Instead, Lord, help us to, to count our blessings as we continue to move forward in worshiping you. Help us each day to take an account of all the wonderful things that you have done. Lord, we are so sick and tired of the sin, the disunity, the evil that is perpetuated in the world around us. And we're ready for you to come back, God. We're ready for you to send your son down to take us home to heaven forever. But until that day happens, Lord, allow us to persevere in unity as we seek to share the gospel with this community and around the world. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.